In addition to MCAST, a subscription to eMedHome.com includes over 1,000 video lectures from the best EM conferences, with more added all the time. View on any device whenever and wherever you want. All this and so much more, including hundreds of CME credits each year for the low cost of only $99. eMedHome.com. For 20 years, the homepage of emergency medicine. Subscribe now. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the December 2023 issue of EMET Homes EMCast. This is Amal Matu from University of Maryland School of Medicine, and once again, welcome back. Before we get started, just want to let everyone know about our upcoming Emergency Cardiology Symposium. It is going to be Wednesday, April 3rd, 2024. So in just a few months, I think this is going to be our ninth annual emergency cardiology symposium. We've got six speakers coming in from around the country and around the world. One of our speakers coming in from the Netherlands to talk about some cardiology conundrums. We'll have the website up and posted and registration and everything all set up probably in the next one month or so. And as always, it probably is going to be a free conference, but for a little charge, you can get CME if you want it. But uh, we really enjoy putting on this conference. It's going to be a half day from around 8 in the morning to around 12 or 1 in the afternoon, and we will record it and make it available to everyone also. So once again, Wednesday, April 3rd, 2024, our ninth Emergency Cardiology Symposium. All right, well, on to EMCast for this month. We've got three topics again. We're going to spend some time talking about indications for sodium bicarbonate use in the emergency department. It's a controversial topic, but there is a very nice article published in Journal of Emergency Medicine that reviewed a lot of indications and contraindications and controversies with regards to bicarb use. Then we're going to change gears and talk about a just published article from Annals of Emergency Medicine that talks about managing migraines in the emergency department. There's so many different therapies that people throw around, so many different medications. We'll talk about what's actually evidence-based and what's not. And then we're going to finish things up by talking about an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on community-acquired pneumonia. What are the updates? What are the new therapies that we all need to know about? Well, we're going to review all of that in the coming minutes. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to kick things off this month with an interesting topic. And there was an article published in Journal of Emergency Medicine this year, 2023, which was a review of bicarbonate use in common clinical scenarios. That was the title of the article. First author was Gabriel Wardy and a handful of colleagues, again, published in Journal of Emergency Medicine. I found this article very interesting because I think the use of sodium bicarb in the emergency department in various clinical settings always raises some eyebrows and, and is a source of a lot of controversy. Some people are more liberal, some people are less liberal, some people tend to be very dogmatic about when you use or, or more more often when you should not use or never use sodium bicarb. And I don't know what the answers are. So I got a good friend, Dr. Lloyd Tannenbaum, who you've heard speaking about a handful of cardiac topics in the past several months. And Lloyd is a faculty member at the Hackensack University Medical Center's Emergency Medicine Residency Program. Lloyd stepped up to address this topic and, and take us through this article. 
and uh, he's going to answer every question we've got on, on Bicarb. So first of all, Lloyd, welcome back to EMCast. It's great to have you back. Hey, um, well, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate you taking on this article. Acid-base stuff is not always the most interesting or fascinating thing for most people in emergency medicine, but bicarb is, to me, I think it's kind of interesting because of all the controversy over the years about the use of bicarb. So let's let's go ahead and jump into this. Let's start with something simple. What exactly is sodium bicarbonate in the emergency department? That's a great question. Um, you know, it turns out sodium bicarbonate has been around since the ancient Egyptian times, uh, and they had a ton of different uses for it. They use it for skin care, for disinfecting wounds, yeah, even for the mummification process. And even today, you know, it's not just medicine that uses bicarb. We use it in fungicides, we use it in household cleaners, even fire extinguishers. You can bake with it. Like there's a ton of uses for bicarb. Specifically in the ED, we traditionally use it for hyperkalemia, uh, urinary alkalinization, and the treatment of certain toxic ingestions. Like if you take a sodium blockade uh, medication, this can help reverse it. If we take a brief EKG tangent that uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, remember if you see one of those really wide complex tachycardias, think one where that QRS complex is over 200 milliseconds or one big box. I don't really think you're ever wrong to give that patient some calcium and some bicarb to help stabilize those cardiac membranes and potentially treat a sodium blockade. I can think of a bunch of benefits for that. I can't really think of many risks. So the big question for this article uh, that they asked, if we can kind of jump away from EKGs for a sec, is should I be giving my acidotic patient sodium bicarb? And if so, in what clinical context? And does it improve outcomes? Or am I really just kind of blindly treating numbers? Great. Now, typically, we think about using sodium bicarb when patients have a severe acidosis. But let's take a step back first. What's the problem with having metabolic acidosis in the first place? And then we'll go from there. You know, I'm a, I feel like I kind of always get these, these topics that give people med school flashbacks. It seems to be a theme of these discussions we have, uh, you know, kind of pretend it's day one of your IM clerkship and you get handed an ABG. And then there's this barrage of questions of, is the patient acidotic, alkalotic? Is there an anion gap? Is there a double delta? Is the patient compensating? I don't know. I'm kind of feeling a little anxious just thinking about some of that. Yeah, PTSD for sure. <laughs> right? So let's just keep it simple. Metabolic acidosis occurs when the body's pH falls below 7.35. It's due to either bicarb loss or acid accumulation. When the body becomes acidotic, it doesn't work great. Myocytes can't contract normally. You're at an increased risk of an arrhythmia due to a cardiac irritability. Blood vessels dilate inappropriately. Those blood vessels can become non-responsive to catecholamines, both the ones the body makes and any pressors we may start. And additionally, the immune response gets blunted since leukocytes can't work well in an acidotic environment. It's not all bad news. You know, the oxygen dissociation curve shifts to the right a little bit, and that decreases hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen and provides more oxygen for the tissues to help combat whatever disease process is going on to cause this acidosis. Additionally, dilated blood vessels provide more oxygen to the tissues, so the body does have a few tricks to try to help itself out if you do get profoundly acidotic. I just want to double tap one topic really quick. Remember, if you have a critically ill patient who's acidotic and you have to start them on pressors, the pressors may not work because of the acidosis. We'll touch on this a little bit more later, but just remember that fact. In severe acidosis, pressors may not work. All right. Well, that leads me to the next very simple question. It, it would seem like a very simple question, but why shouldn't we just give sodium bicarb to everyone then who's acidotic? If there's bad things associated with acidosis, let's just give bicarb to everybody who's got a low pH. What's up with that? 
That's a really good question. So bicarb isn't perfect. Excessive administration can shift the hemoglobin curve to the left and decrease oxygen availability of the tissues, which is one of the few tricks that the body has to combat acidosis. So it's trying to jump more oxygen and the bicarb is making it hold on tighter. It's also possible to give them too much bicarb. And then instead of acidosis, you have alkalosis, which the body tolerates very poorly. A severe alkalosis can drop your body's ionized calcium, and that leads to hypotension and severe dysrhythmias. But let's just hold on that for a second. Let's say you don't over-alkalize them. You just give a little bit of sodium bicarb. What do we need to worry about? You know, I'm going to throw one more med school word out there, hyperosmolar. Uh, as an ER doctor, definitely not one of my top 10 words I use on shift. And, you know, not even if you screen out the occasional swear word, it doesn't even come close to top 10. But amps of sodium bicarb are incredibly hyperosmolar. Think 2,000 milliosmoles per liter. So if you give too much bicarb too quickly, you can get fluid shifts leading to both cerebral and pulmonary edema. And can I take it one step further and blow your mind a little bit? Think back to college chemistry just for a second. The bicarb ion combines with the hydrogen ion to form CO2 and water, which the body breathes off. If you have a patient that isn't breathing well or is intubated with a low minute ventilation rate and you give these patients bicarb, that CO2 isn't leaving. It's not going anywhere. It's just going to build up in the body and cause hypercarbia, which will lower the pH. So you can give bicarb and get worsening acidosis, which is just ridiculous. You shouldn't be able to do that, but you have to be careful with this physiology because if they're not breathing well, that CO2 is going to stick around and you're going to worsen the situation. Great, great points. Uh, you know, I've heard the Intensive care folks bring that up oftentimes also about the fact that if you give bicarb, you can get this paradoxical acidosis if the patient's not breathing well. So you do have to make sure that the patient does have pretty good respiratory function. Well, the authors then talk about some clinical scenarios, some specific scenarios, and whether sodium bicarb might be used in those scenarios. So let's just take each of those scenarios one at a time. The first one that they talk about is lactic acidosis. Is there an indication for administering sodium bicarbonate patients that have a severe lactic acidosis? You know, you know, Amal, for the next couple questions, it's kind of interesting. You're going to ask me a very straightforward yes or no question, and I'm going to give you a very long-winded kind of dance around the question answer. I'm going to feel a little bit like a politician here. So, you know, maybe if medicine doesn't work out, I could consider a career change. Let's start with lactic acidosis. Remember, lactic acidosis is defined as a serum lactate over 4 and a pH less than 7.35. For the ER, septic shock is our biggest cause of lactic acidosis by far. Severe lactic acidosis, think a pH 7.1 to 7.2, has an increased mortality, and traditionally, clinical practice was to correct this acidosis with bicarb, either pushes or a drip. Interestingly, these authors who wrote this article surveyed a couple of their nephrology friends and critical care doctor friends, and they found that 87% of nephrologists and 67% of critical care doctors would start the patient on some kind of buffering solution if the patient had a severe lactic acidosis and they'd target a pH over 7.2, which is interesting because then they asked the question of, should we be doing that? Is there any evidence that supports this conclusion that we, we just want to treat these numbers to see if it gets better? And the answer is maybe in certain situations. So they took a look at a bunch of different studies uh, and they found several studies that show bicarb administration does not improve hemodynamics in critically ill patients. Uh, to quote them directly, there was no effect seen in patients with a pH of 6.9 to 7.2 
and concurrent vasopressor use if they were given bicarb. The bicarb did not help their hemodynamics recover at all. There are multiple studies that show that sodium bicarb does not improve mortality in critically ill patients with severe acidemia or in septic patients with metabolic acidosis, except, and this is the one case that they found a benefit in, except in patients with a concaminant AKI. So let's hit that part a little bit harder. We're going to touch on one trial briefly before we kind of give people a little bit of that glazy look, but there was one big trial done called the BICAR ICU, which is the only randomized trial currently published that looked at bicarb for patients in an ICU with severe metabolic acidosis. They took patients with a pH less than 7.2 and then randomized them. You either got a bicarb infusion or you did not. They looked at 28-day mortality, and they looked at the presence of single organ failure at day seven in these patients. They found absolutely no difference in the patients who were given a bicarb drip or who were not. Uh, they uh, did find that patients who had an AKI and a pH less than 7.2 who got the bicarb did have a decrease in 28-day mortality. So there may be a specific use for bicarb, but just giving it to anybody who's profoundly acidotic did not benefit them at all. So if we put this all together with a nice bow, the answer to your question is no, mostly. The routine use of bicarb for lactic acidosis and shock is not recommended, but there may be a role for bicarb infusion after resuscitation in patients who have an AKI and a pH less than 7.2, but it still remains to be seen. There's a couple trials looking at it now to see if this was just kind of happenstance or if this is something we should kind of latch onto. All right. Well, that actually was very helpful. And for those international folks, AKI stands for acute kidney injury. So if they have some acute renal dysfunction, that's the AKI. And then pH less than 7.2. And, and that seems to be what I've noticed when I've had the nephrologist come down to the emergency department in really sick patients. And, you know, sometimes it seems that they want the bicarb, sometimes not. And I've never really known if there's a rhyme or a reason for it. But I, I think your answer actually clarifies what uh, the decision-making is in many of those nephrologists. All right. Well, next up, they talk about using sodium bicarb in patients with cardiac arrest. Now, this is definitely something we've been hearing a lot about, especially just in recent years. And the ILCOR and HA guidelines have talked about this quite a bit. What's the bottom line here about using sodium bicarb in patients in cardiac arrest? So again, great question. I'm gonna have a slightly long-winded answer for you, but if I could narrow it down to one word, the answer is no. So if we run through it a little bit, bicarb has been part of the ACLS algorithm almost forever, dating back to the 1970s. And then they looked at the data and said, does the data support giving sodium bicarb to these patients with an unknown cause of an arrest? When they looked at the data, they found it did not show any improvements in resuscitative outcomes if the patients were given bicarb. So the focus moved away from several medications, bicarb is one of them, and instead focused on early defib and high quality CPR to improve outcomes. Overall, the data seems to be a no for bicarb and cardiac arrest. There's no improvement with the administration of bicarb, and it may even worsen outcomes. In 2010, the AHA removed bicarb from their undifferentiated arrest ACLS algorithm. Since then, there's been one or two studies that have suggested there may be a benefit. It looked at the timing of the bicarb delivered and looked at what other meds it was given with. Um, so it's possible bicarb may come back into favor, but for right now, not only the AHA, but also PALS, P-A-L-S, the PALS algorithm, recommends only giving bicarb if the arrest is due to hyper-K or some sort of sodium blockade. 
the general consensus seems to be a no on bicarb right now for cardiac arrest. All right, that makes sense. And next, they talk about the probably the most controversial scenario that I encounter, and that is DKA. We in emergency medicine are typically taught not to use it. I remember reading in many of the textbooks that you don't use it. Back when I was in residency, they would say if the pH is under, or, or rather, if the pH is over 7.1, don't use it. And then I remember with some following additions, they said 6.9, and then more people said don't use it at all. And yet there's quite a few times that we have really sick TK patients and the critical care consultants come down and, and they actually want it. So once again, Lloyd, what is the bottom line here on sodium bicarbonate DKA? So the bottom line tends to be no for sodium bicarbonate and DKA. Uh, to back up that statement, you know, there was a strong review published in 2011 that showed no mortality benefit in sodium bicarb when compared with conventional fluid resuscitation in both peds and adult patients. There were then three follow-up trials that were pediatric only that showed that these patients who were given bicarb therapy had an increased rate for the development of cerebral edema, which is something we obviously want to avoid. Even in patients who are profoundly acidotic, think pH of 6.9, 7.1, somewhere around there, there was no improvement in morbidity or mortality uh, or time to resolution of the DKA in patients getting bicarb therapy. So all of these trials are suggesting we should avoid bicarb in DKA. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky, and you kind of touched on that. In patients with a pH less than 6.9, there are some societal guidelines that do recommend bicarb, but some that don't. So it seems like even the experts don't really have a consensus on what we should be doing right now. Based on this article, if we kind of tie it all together, their conclusion was that bicarb therapy in the initial resuscitation or recovery phase of DKA is not recommended and may cause harm, especially in pediatric patients. Data in patients with a severe acidosis and hyperkase lacking and needs further investigation. But for now, personally, I'm avoiding bicarb in DKA patients. And, you know, I wanted to go a little bit further with this question. I, I took it one step further and I asked my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Alyssa Burns, about her thoughts. She's one of the doctors that I work with at Hackensack. She's ER crit, uh, and she's a fantastic physician. She's smart. She's got great gestalt. She's really somebody that you would hope would be in the ICU if you ever needed it. And I asked her, I said, Alyssa, would you use bicarb, uh, a drip, a push, anything for a patient in DKA? And she looked at me and she said, absolutely not. And I was like, all right, well, is there any situation that you would consider using it? Does it matter if the pH is low? Does it matter if you're doing anything? Like, what is there any reason you would think about it? And she thought about it for a minute. And she said she would consider using bicarb in a patient who was profoundly acidotic, think a pH of 6.7 or lower, who was tiring out and needed to get intubated. She would consider using bicarb then as a temporizing measure during the intubation period so that when they're apneic, the CO2 doesn't build up and push them even more acidotic. But she said, other than that, not really. There's really no indication to put them on a drip. There's no indication for pushes. She would avoid it in DKA patients altogether. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, this paper and the authors of this paper didn't really go into using bicarb in these really acidotic patients that end up needing to be intubated. But that is another area of controversy where I've actually heard some people say absolutely not. Again, because if they're not being ventilated well, it could just increase the acidosis other people say it simply gets metabolized to CO2 and water, doesn't really do much to the pH. 
And then on the other hand, I've heard some anesthesiologists who actually have said that they do give boluses of bicarb during the RSI process in patients with severe metabolic acidosis that are needing to be intubated. So that is another area of controversy. And maybe we'll have to find a paper that more specifically addresses that. But there probably yeah, are be because there's there's no good data. <laughs> yeah, that'd be an interesting follow-up. Yeah. All right. Two more things. Next up, what about using sodium bicarb in rhabdomyolysis? You know, we had a patient just a couple of days ago. I worked this past overnight Friday and got signed out on a patient that had rhabdo after cocaine use, and he was down for a while. He had a CK of over 100,000, and he had developed a mild AKI as well. And some people wanted to give, everyone wanted to give him a lot of fluid, but some people were saying that the fluids should have bicarb in it. And others were saying that you don't need the bicarb in the fluid, just give the fluid. So once again, Lloyd, what's the bottom line here? So the thought with rhabdo is that the bicarb will alkalize the urine and help excrete myoglobin to protect the kidneys. Unfortunately, there's no evidence to support this. It was a good thought, but it didn't really pan out in the literature. All the studies reviewed found that adequate fluid hydration was significantly more important than bicarb administration. You know, for this one, I can give you a pretty short, succinct answer. Uh, we're going to avoid bicarb in patients with rhabdo. All right. Sounds good. And the key thing there is just copious IV fluids and make sure the urine output is good. Uh, we ended up not giving bicarb, but there are still some people that kept whispering, shouldn't we be giving bicarb? And so uh, anyway, the patient's uh, CK improved and I think he ended up doing okay. All right, the last scenario they discuss is the use of bicarb in patients with non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Any thoughts about sodium bicarb in these patients? Yeah, I can finally say yes to something. It's, it's a nice change. Uh, remember, so a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis is caused by the direct loss of bicarb, the direct loss of chloride, or impaired ammonia excretion. In a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, you may also see hyponatremia, hypokalemia, volume depletion. These patients are going to need to be fluid resuscitated. And while there are no available randomized control studies uh, to direct the initiation of bicarb therapy in these critical patients, there is a strong physiologic rationale to replace the lost bicarb. Uh, and these authors recommend giving bicarb to these patients. All right. So we finally got a yes here. So it just took me a while. <laughs> just kind of recapping, talked a little bit about lactic acidosis and the overall feeling was kind of a no. We talked about cardiac arrest and the overall feeling there was a, a bit of a stronger no. We talked about DKA and the feeling there was an even stronger no. We talked about rhabdo and it was just kind of a no. And then non-anagap metabolic acidosis was finally a yes. So that was a really interesting, great discussion. Lloyd, are there any additional comments that you want to leave with the listeners before we wrap up? I mean, I, you just kind of summarized everything really perfectly there. The only thing I want to mention one more time is just keep in the back of your mind, pressors may not work if your patient is profoundly acidotic. Uh, so that's just something you need to be aware of and, and have a couple strategies to combat. And then just to summarize one more time, lactic acidosis and shock, routine use of bicarb is not recommended. Cardiac arrest, also not recommended. DKA, not recommended. Rhabdo, Bicarb is not recommended, but for non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, bicarb is recommended. 
All right, sounds good. I feel kind of bad for bicarb, but at least with sodium channel blocker toxicity and hyper-K, you might consider using it there. And so it's it's not totally out, but it's definitely worth something to consider not using more often than you actually consider using. So it is really cool to watch it narrow that really wide QRS complex super fast on EKG. That's so satisfying. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Well, we we still have the EKG then. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Lloyd. Well, once again, thanks so much for your time in taking us through this article and helping clarify kind of a murky situation. And look forward to talking to you again real soon. Thanks so much, Amal. It's always a pleasure. All right. Well, next up on EMCast, we're going to spend some time talking about another bread and butter topic, and that is migraines in the emergency department. There was an article that was just recently published in Annals of Emergency Medicine, and it was on managing and preventing migraine in the emergency department, a review. That was the title of the article. And the first author was Miguel Cortel LeBlanc. There's a handful of colleagues that he worked with. And it was a very nice article talking about management of migraines. It went a little bit beyond migraines. It talked a little about some of the other causes of headaches and also prevention of migraines, which might go a little bit beyond what we normally focus on in EM. And we'll just try to hit on some of the key issues for all of us working in the trenches in the emergency department when these patients uh, present to the emergency department. So joining me are a couple of colleagues, Dr. David Gatz. Uh, David's been on our EMCast before. He's our assistant medical director and one of our core faculty. And a newcomer to EMCast is Dr. Matt Paremba. Matt is one of our emergency medicine clinical pharmacists who has joined our practice within the past year or so, right, Matt? Yep, that's correct. Uh, started and, in the emergency department last November. So. And he, he's been one of our fantastic pharmacist group who has really been uh, trying to keep us out of trouble. I think that's probably <laughs> a pretty full-time job for them. But um, Matt, thanks for joining us. And he's going to really focus in on some of the pathophys and some of the medication aspects. And so, David, Matt, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Well, again, as I mentioned... We are going to focus uh, quite a bit on the treatment aspects of migraines a bit later. So before we get into that, though, let's get some basics out of the way. And Matt, why don't we start with you? The treatments for most conditions are based on what the underlying pathophys for the condition is. So just to start things out, uh, I guess maybe since you're a newcomer, we're going to haze you a little bit. (laughs) um, Can you talk a bit about the pathophysiology behind migraines? Absolutely. And I will preface this by saying the pathophysiology behind migraines is very complex, uh, not fully understood, but I'll do my best to keep this as brief as possible. So we know migraines involve multiple components of both the peripheral and the central nervous system, and that primary neuronal impairments lead to intracranial and extracranial changes, which causes migraines. The trigeminal vascular system is critical in the pain phase of a migraine. Uh, Basically, trigeminal afferent activation leads to release of pro-inflammatory mediators, and this leads to spread of an inflammatory signal to our trigeminal nerve fibers around our intracranial vessels. This results in a series of uh, cortical and meningeal and brainstem events, provoking inflammation and leading to headaches through both central and peripheral mechanisms. I do want to take a moment to point out that there's several neuropeptides that are associated with nociceptor activation by the trigeminal system. These include substance P and calcitonin gene-related peptide. These are both worth keeping in mind as we get into treatments because many of our therapies are going to target 
parts of the trigeminal vascular system, as well as the neuropeptides associated with activation of this system. Fantastic. Thanks for simplifying that. You really did a nice job in condensing a lot of the really big words that were used in the article <laughs> for us. Yeah. All right. David, let's get you back involved. Now, in terms of diagnosing migraine, I, I think one of the key things that we need to do is define what exactly migraine is. Uh, I find, and I'm sure you find, that a lot of patients tend to use the term migraine for just about any head pain that they come in, even though they've never necessarily been formally diagnosed with a migraine or even seen a doctor. People just kind of assume that if they're having a headache, they must have a migraine. So let's try to define some of the terms. Can you talk to us a bit about how migraine is properly diagnosed and then define what is meant by common migraine and vestibular migraine and also chronic migraine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot, right? And as you noted, the term migraine gets thrown around pretty loosely, both by patients and if I'm being honest, probably by clinicians too. The official criteria for the diagnosis of migraine, which this paper goes into, are actually rather intense. The authors had to dedicate a whole page size table just to this topic. And to try and break it down a little bit, I think the easiest way to think about this is that there are three common types of migraines that we're likely to encounter in the ED setting. Number one, migraines without an aura. Number two, migraines with aura. And finally, one of the ones you mentioned there, vestibular migraines. So for someone to be diagnosed, starting with the first one here, with migraines without aura, which were previously referred to as a quote-unquote common migraine, they need to have at least five episodes with headaches lasting greater than four hours. And then in addition to that, they need to have at least two of the following features, things that we're, we're kind of familiar with, unilateral location, so right side, left side, uh, pulsing quality, moderate to severe intensity, that makes sense. And then also one of those options is to be aggravated by routine physical activity, which I have to admit is not a question I, I regularly ask my, my headache patients. Now, in addition to that, they also need to have either nausea and or vomiting, or photophobia and or phonophobia. So as you can see, there's a lot that goes into that like true official diagnosis of saying you have common migraines or migraines without aura in that case. When it comes to migraines with aura, these patients actually only need two episodes, but the criteria are pretty strict. They need to have at least one reversible aura symptom. And this can be visual, sensory, speech or language, motor, brainstem, or even retinal. In addition to that, they need at least three of six nuanced features regarding the aura, such as it being unilateral and the headache occurring you know, within 60 minutes of the aura, which makes sense, right? It needs to be paired with a headache. Um, visual aura are by far the most common presentation. And this is where that term classic migraine comes in. And this is what most of our patients will experience. And, and if you haven't looked at this, I'm sure most of us have, right? You can easily Google for some images of what this looks like. There are some great examples of these kind of visual symptoms that these patients experience, the jagged bright lines kind of in the periphery of their vision. So again, that's our classic migraine. Finally, 
it's important you brought up this concept of vestibular migraines. So what are these? These are a type that can occur in patients who have a history of common or classic migraines. And in this case, the diagnosis requires at least five episodes where they present with vestibular symptoms, namely vertigo of moderate to severe intensity and lasting anywhere from five minutes to a miserable 72 hours. Additionally, at least half of these episodes need to be associated with photophobia, phonophobia, or classic headache, which I want to note the, the part I would take away from that is that you can have a vestibular migraine without head pain. So something to potentially keep in your differential of someone who comes in with these, you know, kind of persistent bad vertigo symptoms, you know, if they have this history of migraines as well, you might consider, is this actually you know, are they presenting pure vertigo or is this secondary to a vestibular migraine that's presenting without that kind of typical head pain that we're experiencing? Um, and I was surprised by this. The authors included, um, actually, I don't know if it was in this or some other resources I was reading, but vestibular migraines make up about a tenth of patients who present to migraine clinics. So not an infrequent uh, diagnosis. And then finally, um, importantly, you brought up chronic migraines. So patients are said to suffer from chronic migraines when they experience headache for at least 15 days out of the month. Um, so encountering this on a very regular basis. It definitely makes things very confusing. You know, one of the things I learned when I was in medical school and, and also definitely in training is that headache could be very helpful to distinguish between strokes versus migraines. And I was taught that stroke patients, ischemic strokes, that is, don't have headaches and patients with the migraines do have headaches, but actually we know that there's a lot of overlap between the two and that makes yeah. it very difficult. So, well, let's stay with you for, for a couple more questions here regarding making this clinical distinction. The first question, sometimes migraines with an aura, as you mentioned, can be misdiagnosed as stroke. Do you have any tips for distinguishing between a migraine versus stroke in that scenario? Yeah, this, this can be tricky. And exactly as you said, right, we want to believe that we live in this world where, you know, strokes don't have headaches, not the case, right? So earlier, I mentioned that migraine with aura comes in several flavors. And, and we talked about the visual auras are kind of the most common presentation. Uh, but the authors do a nice job breaking down three important rare subtypes, including, number one, a hemiplegic migraine. So this is where patients develop fully reversible, but motor weakness and fully reversible visual sensory and or speech or language symptoms. So in other words, they come in looking very much like a stroke, secondary to a migraine. Number two is a migraine that presents with brainstem aura. So these patients present with a combination of brainstem symptoms so that we could be talking things like dysarthria, vertigo, tinnitus, diplopia, ataxia, and even a decreased level of consciousness. Uh, the authors do make an important note that these patients, if we're talking this brainstem or brainstem symptoms, these are patients who are not going to have any motor or retinal symptoms, which kind of carries over into our, our final number three um, you know, subtype here, which is a retinal migraine, which I'll admit is not something I personally encountered. But this can present with fully reversible monocular visual phenomena, which can be either positive or negative, right? So they're seeing additional findings, like some of those visual auras we were talking about, or maybe they have negative symptoms where they actually lose vision in that eye, which of course could make you think something like a CRAO or, or something like that. Now, the question, as you alluded to, becomes 
how do we distinguish these neurologic symptoms in a patient with a migraine from someone who's having, say, an acute ischemic stroke? And the author suggests several tips. First is to just recognize the, the patient population, right? Who's going to be more likely at risk of a migraine over a stroke? Well, younger patients or absence of cerebrovascular risk factors, if there's a prior history of migraine, if the symptoms are of relatively mild severity, all of these are strongly associated with migraine over stroke. Next, they recommend that we consider the timing. What do I mean by this? Migraine aura tend to evolve over several minutes and can also be successive, right? So I might start with some visual aura symptoms and then gradually I develop increasing weakness on one side of my body if I'm having like a hemiplegic migraine, for example. Compare that to kind of our, our classic thought for an ischemic CVA or a TIA in which those some symptoms are going to start rather abruptly, not evolve over time. Uh, and then they additionally recommend that we consider just the, the character of the symptoms, namely whether there are, to say, negative versus positive phenomena. And, and what's meant by this? So a stroke typically presents with negative phenomena, right? I lose something. I lose control of motor. I get weakness. I lose control of sensation. I have numbness. I get visual loss. A migraine, by contrast, will often present, you know, at least concomitantly with some sort of positive sensory phenomena, such as paresthesias or flashing lights or those classic zigzag lines uh, that might obstruct the patient's vision. So those are some of the tips that they outline. They also make a, a few additional extra points, which is, you know, it's worth mentioning uh, that posterior strokes, when you're looking at overall incidents, are far more common than, you know, that migraine with brainstem aura. So when you're thinking about, especially if it's like a first time presentation, right, this is probably someone where we're all going to get caught up and maybe administer, you know, a systemic thrombolytic to a stroke mimic, that would be pretty understandable in, in a situation like this, um, because it is a very rare event. And it's going to be hard, especially for, you know, something as rare as those brainstem symptoms to distinguish that from an acute stroke. I, I kind of feel like maybe all these patients, I just ought to give them all some combination drug that has both <laughs> paradol plus TPA. And that way I'll kind of take care Perfect. of both. <laughs> so I, I I hear a patent pending on that. <laughs> so right. I think I think you got some money there. there now, I will I will say, you know, one one final point just on on the stroke topic though. You know, I I have over over the years, I, I have a patient that I've seen several times who does present with hemiplegic migraines. And quite frankly, it's it's awesome to see someone who comes in looking like a stroke when you give someone some prochlorperazine to have their symptoms entirely resolve. That's amazing to watch, but it is it is a relatively rare presentation. But just just to cast a little doubt, you also have to worry that maybe it was actually a TIA. In the <laughs> it's just so uh, anyway, sorry, I don't want to ruin your day. So, David, uh, that was the first question. The second question before we come back to Matt is. We discussed migraine versus stroke, or, or you did. What other critical illnesses should we consider in the differential for patients presenting with headaches? Now, you know, of course, there's a hundred things that can produce headaches, but what are the can't-miss causes of headaches that we should also keep in our differential when we are seeing these patients with migraines? I'm sorry, Alma, I don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing dangerous that causes a headache. 
Okay, um, great. Yeah, I'll right. see you in court. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the list the list is is long and certainly more than we can explore here and now. But you know, this is something where as you're evaluating these patients, and, and the authors do a nice job of mentioning this a few times, right? Don't jump to just putting people in the bucket of migraine, including even if they respond appropriately to therapy, as you just noted, right? That doesn't diagnose a migraine in these patients. So we need to make sure we're considering other things on the differential. So, right, if someone comes in with a thunderclap headache, certainly we need to consider a subarachnoid. If there's a fever, we definitely need to think about a CNS infection. If there's some sort of associated altered mentation, right, maybe this is a subtle presentation of trauma that we missed, or, you know, maybe it represents something like stroke or meningitis or press or carbon monoxide poisoning, all things to keep on that differential. Maybe if they're peripartum, um, you know, Amal, you and I dedicated an entire talk to discussion of CVT. So that would be a consideration for headache. You know, if your patient is over 50 and or has, you know, symptoms like jaw claudication, certainly consider giant cell arteritis. If there's associated papilledema, which hopefully we're looking for sometimes in the right patients, or maybe they have you know a headache that's precipitated or exacerbated by certain positions or Valsalva maneuvers, then we need to be thinking about, you know is this elevated intracranial hypertension? So many different things that we need to think about. I think most of us are pretty good about incorporating that into our practice, but of course that gentle reminder, you know, even if someone comes in, as you noted, right? Saying, oh, I'm having a migraine headache, right? Patients, Patients don't know, and and most of them probably don't have a formal diagnosis of migraines. We make sure we need to make sure we give every headache that presents in the emergency department. Certainly, it's it's fair consideration of a of a long and dangerous differential. Well, Matt, one of the differentials that the authors listed included medication overuse headache. Now, that's not one that's commonly taught or discussed. Can you take us through that? Yeah, this uh, type of headache is absolutely worth mentioning. Uh, so medication overuse headache is defined by the International Headache Society as a condition where you have a headache at least 15 days per month, secondary to overuse of a medication that you are taking for acute use to treat a symptomatic headache. Overuse is defined as using either NSAIDs or acetaminophen at least 15 days a month for treatment of your headache or using NSAIDs plus acetaminophen in combination or any of our other abortive agents like triptans or ergots at least 10 days a month for at least three months. Now, it can be very, very difficult to get a reliable history about medication use from a patient, and that's probably why the reported incidence of this type of headache is so variable. I've seen reports in the literature that as few as 1% or half a percent of patients with headaches might have medication overuse headache at some point in their clinical journey. And I've seen reports that it may be as high as 7%. Um, common estimates say that up to 60 million people worldwide experience this type of headache. Uh, it's thought that medication overuse may over a long period of time lead to altered neurotransmitter metabolism in these patients, which ultimately leads to increased frequency of headaches or increased susceptibility to experiencing future headaches. Now, managing this is similar to managing other um, headaches in the acute phase, but typically you ultimately want to withdraw whatever the culprit medication is. So if you get a reliable history and you know someone's been taking ibuprofen 20, 25 days a month, you want to try to guide them towards stopping use of the ibuprofen and maybe substituting that with a different acute 
headache medication. If it's not doable for them to completely withdraw the culprit medication, you could also try to just get them to reduce use, ideally to two days a week or even less. And initiation of a preventative treatment is also likely going to be beneficial in these patients. And that's ultimately what's recommended in a lot of headache society guidelines uh, regarding medication overuse headache. You know, like I said at the start of this question, I hadn't really heard of this before, hadn't heard it discussed before, but very interesting. And unfortunately, it leads to what sounds like just a vicious cycle where, as you mentioned, this altered neurotransmitter transmission leads to further headaches and which is going to make them take more medication. And so that that's really unfortunate. I think of it as very similar to hyperalgesia you might see in some of your chronic opioid users. I don't know if the mechanism is exactly the same, but um, in terms of presentation, that's sort of what it feels like when you have to manage it. Yeah, those are questions I've never asked before. I've never asked somebody about how frequently they're taking their, their medications to that point. All right. Well, David, back to you. The authors of the article discuss some complications of migraines, which we often don't hear about or consider. Can you take us through that section? Yeah, I thought this was particularly interesting because just as you mentioned, right, migraines are not traditionally a condition you think about as developing complications, but the authors do identify and discuss four such complications. The first is status migranosis, which is defined as a debilitating migraine attack that's unremitting for at least 72 hours. And and they bring this up because this population, when someone experiences this, uh, they become a patient that's at increased risk of progressing to chronic migraine, that definition we talked about earlier with the 15 headache days or more per month, um, which I think probably has more implications as, as far as outpatient management, maybe not for the emergency department, but is still something to be aware of. Second, they list this concept of migranous infarction, which speaks to an observed correlation between migraine with aura and an increased risk of stroke, which is not what we want to hear when we just had a whole conversation about how we're trying to distinguish these two features. Uh, and it's kind of a chicken and the egg argument here. Ultimately, it's it's unclear whether stroke can be a complication of migraine, but it has been postulated that migranous infarction is possible from the hypoperfusion that can be associated with aura. Now, building off of this, there's there's a third listed complication, and this is the concept of what they call persistent aura without infarction. And so this is a patient who's experiencing migraine aura symptoms. Remember, that's predominantly visual is the most common, but there is a whole variety of aura symptoms that these patients can experience. And so it's someone who's experiencing migraine aura for at least one week without evidence of cerebral infarction. And you could see why that sort of a distinction may be necessary. If someone comes in with, let's just go to the dramatic example of hemiplegia from a, from a migraine, and yet there's no findings on the MRI to, success, to suggest a stroke. That's kind of this, this situation that they're describing. Now, fortunately, this is extremely rare. Finally, the authors bring up the idea of uh, what they call migraine aura-triggered seizure, uh, which, as the name implies, is seizures that are triggered by migraine with aura. Now, these are additionally rare events, thankfully, uh, and are essentially characterized by epileptic activity 
occurring within 60 minutes of a migraine with aura, which kind of makes sense based on based on the name there. But those were some of the the complications that the authors described. Interesting. And again, I hadn't heard of these described before. That migraineous infarction definitely is scary. And I guess uh, a nice reminder that migraines typically, or at least in many cases, do have a vascular component to their underlying etiology. And so if if you're developing migraine symptoms due to hyperperfusion and it just lasts for a long time, I guess it makes sense that you could actually end up infarcting, but uh, definitely scary. All right. Well, let's move on to, I, I think, the main key of this article, at least looking at the title, and that is how to manage these patients. And Matt, back to you now. The authors split this section into mild to moderate and also moderate to severe headaches when they begin their discussion of uh, how to treat these patients. Can you take us through the treatments for these different groups of patients? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'll start off with mild to moderate treatment. So mild to moderate headache, as far as I understand, essentially means a headache with non-disabling symptoms or symptoms that don't require the patient to stop participating in whatever activity they're doing, do not require bed rest, do not require the patient to lie down. For these headaches, really your go-to treatments are going to be either acetaminophen or an oral NSAID such as ibuprofen or naproxen. That will typically be sufficient. You could combine them if absolutely necessary. For our moderate to severe headaches, the number of therapeutic options greatly widens. So our first-line agents are going to include either intravenous metoclopramide or prochlorperazine. Do not give these orally. Give them intravenously. That's how they're studied, and that's where you see the most benefit. The nice thing with these meds is they also can manage the nausea and vomiting that may be associated with migraines. Their biggest downside is that you can get some uh, EPS or akathisia, which can be managed with diphenhydramine if absolutely necessary. One of the other first-line agents is going to be subcutaneous sumatriptan. The thing to point out with sumatriptan is it does work. The issue is most of its benefits are going to be in that first hour or so after symptom onset, and many of the patients who are going to be presenting to the emergency department have likely had their symptoms uh, ongoing longer than this amount of time, so uh, maybe not the most common medication we'll be using in the ED. There's also Ketorolac, which I do want to point out that the dose of Ketorolac recommended in this article is 30 milligrams intravenously or 60 milligrams intramuscularly. I know there is a big Annals of Emergency Medicine article showing that 10 or 15 milligrams is likely the analgesic ceiling for Ketorolac. And personally, I'm all for using lower doses that have similar efficacy and lower potential for harm. But I do need to point out that this study enrolled very few patients with headache. I think there is single digit enrollees who had headache as their primary complaint in each treatment arm. And we haven't really established an anti-inflammatory ceiling of Ketorolac. So for this disease state specifically, I'm still okay with the 30 milligrams intravenous dose. Uh, I do want to point out the 60 milligram intramuscular dose recommendation comes from what I can gather one trial where 30 milligrams of uh, intramuscular Ketorolac was shown to be inferior to meperidine, but we don't really use meperidine first line anymore. So 30 milligrams intramuscularly might be worth using as well. The final first line agent they discuss is dihydroergotamine, one milligram intravenous. This is an older drug. Many of the trials involving this drug are poor quality. It works similarly to tryptans, uh, but it's a little bit dirtier of a drug and hits a few more receptors. 
this is listed as a first line agent in the article, but has low quality evidence ratings and um, the Canadian Headache Society guidelines and the American Headache Society guideline doesn't even make a recommendation regarding this med. So I would generally not use this first line. And that goes to our first line treatments. Now, with our second line options, you really have valproic acid, 800 to 1000 milligrams IV, essentially a loading dose. Uh, this can be a, a decent option, but you have to be careful not to use this in pregnant patients or any patient with um, LFT elevations. And then our third line agents, uh, according to this article, at least really is magnesium sulfate. The article states to use one gram intravenous over 15 to 20 minutes, though I would point out that there was a recent trial called the MAGRAIN trial, which used two grams of magnesium sulfate over 20 minutes instead of one gram. And this was compared to metoclopramide and prochlorperazine and found similar ED length of stay, need for rescue analgesia, and adverse effects between these different medications. So personally, I would go for magnesium sulfate two grams over 20 minutes as opposed to one gram. The final medication I really want to point out here is dexamethasone 10 milligrams intravenous. This can be offered in the emergency department to prevent recurrence of migraine. As far as I know, it's thought that a steroid might prevent neurogenic inflammation long-term, though results have been sort of mixed in randomized controlled trials. I was able to pull a meta-analysis looking at dexamethasone for prevention of headache recurrence. And it seems that the prevention rates are around 10%, so not amazingly high, but uh, better than nothing, certainly. So I think it's worth offering. The big thing with dexamethasone is I'd really limit that to use in patients with a diagnosis of migraine, though, as we've discussed previously in this podcast, uh, many patients may inappropriately have a diagnosis of migraine or have had longstanding headaches and never been formally worked up to be diagnosed with migraine. And that's really my take on the first line medication and second and third line medications that you'd most commonly used in the ED for management of headache. That was absolutely fantastic and so much more clear, in my opinion, than <laughs> the article. So I really appreciate that. And also you bringing some outside literature to discuss this. I've heard a lot about magnesium in the past few years, and I have to admit that I have not tried magnesium specifically for migraines, but uh, definitely worth a shot. Uh, David, the authors also talk about using some nerve blocks, which might be tough to go through in an audio podcast. Is this something that you've done before? Great question. Yeah, the authors do mention several types of nerve blocks. They specifically recommend either the spinopalatine ganglion or the occipital nerve blocks. Given the amount of evidence relative to the to the other types of blocks, although the authors acknowledge that all evidence remains relatively weak for these. And I'm I'm curious you know, for your guys' experience as well. I have not personally had a chance to do this. I've come close in, in one situation where someone's migraine had not been getting better despite uh, a lot of therapy, uh, although it ultimately improved. Um, I have considered adding it to my practice, but I, I think its role is probably, as I mentioned, in patients who have not responded to the, the other first-line therapies for me. Not used nerve blocks before, but I, I will admit that I've been hearing a lot more about it from emergency physicians at conferences, uh, and and I think that it might be something worth checking out. Hopefully, uh, if we were to do a internet search, there are some nice videos out there demonstrating how to do it. And uh, I've heard these physicians say that the patients love these. Now, of course, they're probably not going to be lecturing about nerve blocks and say, oh, by the way, the patients hate these. <laughs> so there's probably a bit of a bias there. But I think it, it definitely seems to make sense and maybe one more thing to add. 
to yeah, I will. I will say there there are a lot of published methods out there, especially for this phenopalatine ganglion block. Some of which are, I mean, it's it seems unfair to even call it a block. I mean, I guess you are hitting a nerve, but it's it's not like you're doing injections, right? Some of them are recommending you're just dripping lidocaine into the nose or using like an an atomizer, for example. So you know the the amount of effort to em- employ something like that is pretty low, and you know would would be easy to consider adding to most practice. All right, Matt, nearing the end of the article, the authors have a, a brief discussion of drugs to avoid and also some experimental and controversial treatments. It sounds like fun to talk about. <laughs> so can you briefly take us through these drugs to avoid and also some of these experimental and controversial therapies? Yeah, we'll, we'll start off with the most important drugs to avoid in headache. Uh, these drugs are your opioids and your barbiturates, which probably isn't terribly surprising to anyone. Uh, both classes of these medications are strongly associated with medication overuse headache, which I previously discussed. They also have higher rates of headache recurrence following an ED visit and can lead to progression to chronic migraine. I think given how many other treatments are available, along with the lack of benefit of these medications, plus their addictive potential, there's not really any use for these medications in treatment of headache in the emergency department. Now, with regards to more experimental treatments, the article does mention propofol and ketamine as possible options for treatment of headache, though personally, I think given the monitoring required for administration of these meds, I'm hard-pressed to think of a scenario where I'd recommend using them for acute treatment outside of for research purposes, really. The article also touches on intravenous lidocaine. Small studies have shown some benefit with this, though not sustained pain relief, certainly. And I think there'd be some questions as to how you're dosing it if you're just doing a bolus, or are we committing someone to an infusion? At which point are we admitting them for management of the headache? I'm not sure. At this point, I think there's insufficient evidence to really recommend use of any of these medications, uh, especially in the setting of ED overcrowding and the amount of monitoring required for administration of these meds compared to some of our standards of care. I did want to briefly touch on a couple other classes of meds, the GPANS, like Ubrojapan, which is a CGRP receptor antagonist, and Lasmitidan, which is a, a novel 5-HT1B serotonin receptor agonist. Uh, Really, all you need to know with these is they're both FDA approved for acute treatment of migraine, really have only been approved on studies that took place in outpatient settings, and they seem to be solid acute migraine treatments, but it really remains to be seen if they have any role or would confer any benefit to our current therapies in emergency department management of acute headache. Uh, Those are just medications to, I'd say, keep on your radar. Hadn't heard about those at all, but they are now on the (laughs) radar. Hopefully, they'll come up with an easier name than the... Yeah, letters and numbers are involved in that receptor. (laughs) Please. Um, (laughs) Yeah. David, the authors discuss some special populations. What special populations deserve special consideration? Always important to consider. And as you mentioned, the authors mentioned several. Number one, pregnancy and lactating, which makes sense. Not all medications are safe. So acetaminophen and medicalopramide are therefore first line in this population. We talked a little bit about magnesium nerve blocks already. Those would also be appropriate to consider in in this population. So again, for pregnancy uh, and lactating patients. 
Number two is pediatric populations. Fortunately, overall, the approach here is similar. I don't actually know if doses change in, in a pediatric population for, for some of these medications, but that would be the one thing to keep an eye on. And then number three that they bring up is post-traumatic headache. Uh, and I think they do this mainly because there's a nice article relatively recent in an RCT that found metoclopramide with diphenhydramine was effective at treating post-traumatic headaches. Uh, so sort of extending beyond the range of migraine, which was kind of supposed to be the, the focus of, of this paper, but uh, also talking about a post-traumatic headache there where some similar medications may be efficacious. Well, David, finishing things up, the authors discuss some prevention strategies and also discharge instructions and counseling. Can you bring us home with what they have to say? Yeah. And, you know, Matt already mentioned the the first big thing, which is dexamethasone. And I really liked his point here about it is it has some benefit uh, in patients who have true migraines. And we, we have to just be careful about who we're applying that to, because uh, as we've noted, the, the term migraine is used pretty loosely uh, by everyone in the department. Uh, the the authors additionally discuss the idea of prescribing preventative medication. And, and there are, you know, three medications that kind of are listed with the strongest evidence, metoprolol, pyramate, and amitriptyline. Uh, and I'll be honest, I'm not specifically aware of any data on how often these get prescribed from the ED setting, but I, I think it's fair to suspect that it's, it's probably pretty rare uh, and not unreasonable given the complicated criteria we already reviewed at the very beginning of this conversation when it comes to what officially makes the diagnosis of uh, a migraine in a patient presenting with headache. Similarly, the authors describe the idea of prescribing some acute medications such as a triptan. Uh, I'll admit I've only done this on an extremely rare basis uh, for the, the same reasons I, I already mentioned uh, previously. You know, these, these types of medications are, at least in my opinion, probably best coming out of a, a primary care setting. Uh, and then finally, the authors discuss how clinicians can attempt some counseling regarding, you know, lifestyle modifications, you know, potential triggers for headaches. And they recommend things like reducing alcohol, avoiding dehydration, avoiding hunger, increasing physical activity, improving sleep hygiene, limiting caffeine intake, something I'm absolutely not willing to consider. And thankfully, they- We got to draw the line somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, there's no way that's getting limited. I can do the other ones, but they they acknowledge that the evidence for, for these as headache prevention prevention mechanisms as a, as a mechanism for preventing headaches is, is not super strong, but felt to, to still potentially be beneficial. All right. Well, that was a really great discussion. David and Matt, thanks so much. Uh, before we wrap it up, any final comments? Matt, how about we start with you? Any final comments you want to leave for the listeners? Uh, yeah. Something that I don't think we touched on too much here is just uh, the pregnant population. I feel like every time a pregnant patient comes in with headaches, that's someone that physicians are reaching out to pharmacy about what's okay to give to that patient. I'd say your safest drugs for that population are probably going to be acetaminophen, and you could use metoclopramide as well. I do think that might be a population where it might be earlier up in the treatment paradigm that you go towards using a nerve block because that should be relatively benign in a pregnant patient as well. But I just wanted to throw that out there. Great points, Matt. David, any final comments? Yeah, you know, I think just, well, I have I always have many final comments, but I'll try and limit myself. One, I do want to highlight, you know, some of the things Matt said that I thought were really interesting from, from before. I'll admit, especially when it came to uh, the Ketorolac dosing, I, I was glad you brought that up because I, 
I guess I've I've really hammered into myself this practice of of really trying to stick to my analgesic ceilings and and below. But you made a great point there about it not being studied in in this population specifically, and and whether those anti-inflammatory benefits um, of a higher dose, you know, may may be helpful here. So I may have to rethink how I've been dosing that in my in my headache patients. I like that. You know, the the only other thing that I I wanted to just touch on because it kind of jumped out to me as I was reviewing this article was just the idea of of intravenous fluids because I, I remember at least when I was coming up through residency it it just felt like I you know is is like a trap question where I'd be quizzed do you want to give you know IV fluids to this you know otherwise unaffected headache patient of course the answer was if if they were dehydrated or something like that certainly they they may benefit um, from fluids but it. it I certainly walked away with the impression that there was there was no real role for IV fluids in in routine management of migraine attacks and and I did appreciate that the authors pointed out that there is no randomized controlled trials evaluating the influence of intravenous fluid on migraine outcomes. There was like one post hoc analysis, but uh, you know that just stands out to me as you know if you want to give fluids to your migraine patient, go ahead. I found that just about anything benefits from both fluids and, uh, you know, a, a lunchbox. Most of my patients feel better after that. So again, if you want to give fluids for a headache, go to town. Whenever I take sign out from you, there's never any lunchboxes left. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's a great point. I, I hear people going both ways. Some people say, well, if you're, if, if you're going to give an IV medicine, you might as well give fluids also. And I've heard other people that are very, very stingy about any IV fluids. And uh, I don't know what the answer is. Got to save that $3 bag of saline. Absolutely. Well, it doesn't sound like anyone else has the answer either. So if there's any budding researchers out there that want to do a study on a a cheap medication, maybe that's what the problem is, is there's no drug companies pushing the- (laughs) No money. That's right, exactly. (laughs) So anyway, that was a really great conversation that we've had about this article on migraines, good bread and butter stuff. And hopefully we'll kind of take- our treatment of these patients just a little bit further. Doctors David Gatz, Matt Paremba, thank you so much for your time and uh, hope to get you guys back on EMCast in the near future. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having me as well. Well, next up on EMCast, we're going to turn our attention to an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in August on community-acquired pneumonia, a really nice review article just to kind of update what we're supposed to know about community-acquired pneumonia. This is in their clinical practice series of articles in the New England Journal. And whenever I see these articles, when they're relevant to emergency medicine, again, like many other articles, they oftentimes show up in the LLSA, although that is going away, but also on the emergency medicine boards. And besides that, this is just bread and butter stuff that I think we ought to know. And it, it keeps changing over the years you think you know community-acquired pneumonia and you just give azithromycin to everybody and then they change it and you have to think about, well, maybe they were on antibiotics for some other reason recently. Maybe they were hospitalized recently and it all becomes very confusing. So hopefully this article is going to straighten out what we're supposed to know as of late 2023. Joining me is Dr. Bobby Lowy. Bobby has been on the EMCast a few times before and she is developing her niche as an expert in infectious disease emergencies. So this is right up her alley and she's been lecturing nationally and also internationally on infectious disease topics. And so Bobby, welcome back to EMCast. It's great to have you back. Thank you, Amal. It is great to be here as always. Well, let's go ahead and jump into this article. 
Now, this article starts out by presenting a fairly straightforward classic case of community-acquired pneumonia. That's how the, these articles in this clinical practice series usually run. They present a fairly bread and butter case. And I'll just summarize the case that they're talking about, which will lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about. They talked about a 66-year-old man who had underlying COPD, who presented with a two-day history of fever, shortness of breath, cough, productive of green sputum, he had some mild respiratory distress and confusion. And his exam was notable for a fever of 38.6 Celsius. He had borderline tachycardia. He was a bit tachyptic at 24. And his pulse ox on Romero was 92%. And he had ronchi on the right side. We'll skip over the labs that they talked about for now. We'll come back to labs later. And so th this seems like a pretty straightforward case of community-acquired pneumonia, which leads to our discussion. So let me first just ask a basic question that isn't necessarily easy to answer. Why do some patients get pneumonia and some don't? Do you have an answer for that? Like many things in medicine, the answer is going to be multifactorial. And I have to say, I do love that vignette. It is so straightforward. I wish most of our patients showed up with such a straightforward history. So going back to why some patients get it and why some don't, first, of course, we have to think about our host susceptibility. So factors that increase the risk of community-acquired pneumonia are going to include advanced age, chronic lung or heart disease, patients with diabetes, malnutrition, recent viral respiratory infections, our immunocompromising conditions, and not to forget our lifestyle factors, so smoking and excessive alcohol consumption. We then have to think about the virulence of the pathogen, the inoculum, or how much of that microorganism is actually reaching the lower airways of the patient. Microaspiration is the primary pathway that patients get microorganisms into the alveoli. It can also happen through inhalation, macroaspiration, hematogenous spread. But what has to happen is that the bacteria has to overcome the patient's innate defense mechanisms. This is mucus trapping, mucociliary clearance, coughing or swallowing. So any patient that has impairment of any of these defense mechanisms is going to be at increased risk. That kind of uh, makes things a little bit easier. I always thought it was just a matter of bad luck, but I guess there is some pathophys behind why some people get pneumonia and some others. Well, with the case that they present in the article, which I briefly summarized, do we need to do anything more to make the diagnosis? I mean, this seems pretty straightforward. Do we really need any additional evaluation and testing for patients like this? Diagnosis is essentially made by the supporting signs and symptoms, much like the ones that are in that initial vignette. Cough, fevers, shortness of breath, some tachypnea, crackles or ronchi on exam, in addition to radiographic evidence. So this is your chest x-ray or your CT scan. I've definitely done CT scans in patients who are super dehydrated or immunocompromised where I'm not really seeing that pneumonia that I'm suspicious for with my clinical history and find that kind of blooming pneumonia. So some radiographic evidence with the story. Of course, you can get additional lab evaluations, so blood counts, um, chemistry to look for like liver or renal injury. It's not necessary to make your diagnosis of pneumonia, but it can help with risk stratifying patients, especially those with more severe pneumonia. The article also brings up procalcitonin, and this is something that I have definitely seen over the years reading about pneumonia as a marker for bacterial infection. But truthfully, in the emergency department, it's still not specific, and it can be falsely positive as well as negative in the setting of some types of bacterial pneumonia like mycoplasma. So I don't think procalcitonin is, is on my list of routine things I'm going to do for pneumonia these days. Honestly, no, if I've ever ordered a procalcitonin, and, and there's really some people out there that are really big believers in procalcitonin. It's almost like a religion, I think. <laughs> and I don't even know if we get it back in a reasonable period of time. 
But uh, anyway, I guess this is one of those things that we we have to at least think about. What about cultures? Back when I was in training, you would get scolded if you ever start antibiotics without getting blood cultures and sputum cultures uh, and any other cultures you can think of on anyone who's getting admitted. But we've kind of backed off on that over the years. What are the current recommendations now in terms of the blood cultures or sputum cultures? For most, if not all, of your well-appearing patients that are going to go home on empiric antibiotic regimens, it is not necessary to obtain blood cultures or sputum cultures because it's not truly cost-effective. A lot of these tests don't come back quickly, and most of these patients are going to respond well to that empiric treatment. You can consider testing for viral infections, especially in the setting of COVID, uh, but you really don't need to get those blood cultures or sputum cultures. In your hospitalized patients, however, and those with more severe pneumonias, the article does say that it is helpful to obtain both blood cultures as well as sputum cultures to help kind of provide appropriate directed therapies and to promote antibiotic stewardship. They also even recommend potentially getting urine, strep pneumonia, and Legionella studies, and even maybe a MRSA swab for those going to the ICU. That kind of makes sense. Now, once we've established a diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, how do we decide on inpatient floor treatment versus inpatient ICU versus just outpatient management? I love this question. Ultimately, I think as clinicians, we can use our gestalt and good clinical judgment to decide whether our patients need inpatient or outpatient therapy and whether we think our patients require higher levels of care. But if you need something to help you make that diagnosis or if you're just kind of leaning on that fence a little bit, the article does go into two scoring tools, which are most commonly used here. One is the Pneumonia Severity Index, or PSI, and the other is CURB-65. I tend to be more of a CURB-65 person. I think it works well, and it's pretty easy to use. PSI also needs a blood gas in order to be completely filled out, and I don't always get a blood gas on these patients as well. CURB-65 depends on essentially five factors which are in the name. So C is for confusion, U is for BUN greater than 19, R is for a respiratory rate greater than 30, B is for a blood pressure systolic less than 90 or diastolic less than 60, and 65 refers to the patient's age. If the patient has zero to one points, that patient may be suitable for outpatient therapy. If they are at two points, you're considering inpatient therapy, and then three, four, or five points should be someone you're thinking about potentially sending to the ICU. Putting PSI and CURB next to each other, they both perform similarly well. PSI might be slightly better at uh, identifying more low-risk patients, but again, I think CURB-65 is really easy to use, so that's the one that I sort of lean on. I just want our listeners to keep in mind that these scores don't take into account any socioeconomic status of our patients or psychosocial factors, and they also do not take into account immunocompromised patients. So just be mindful of that when you are using these scoring tools. Important caveats for sure. All right. Now, what are the current recommendations regarding antibiotic treatment? Now, this is a huge topic to talk about. We can kind of split our patients into two separate groups. So our ambulatory patients versus our inpatients. So we'll start with our ambulatory patients. And then again, we can kind of break these into two separate groups as well. So our ambulatory patients who are under the age of 65 and are otherwise healthy with no recent antibiotic use you can either do amoxicillin one gram three times daily or doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day. The article also talks about macrolide use, so monotherapy with macrolides, either azithromycin or clarithromycin. This is not recommended in the United States just because our macrolide resistance is greater than 25%. 
For patients who have taken recent antibiotics within the past three months, have any serious coexisting conditions, so chronic heart or lung disease, kidney disease, liver disease, smokers, chronic alcoholics, or diabetes, we're going to do combination therapy here. And this is going to be with Augmentin or amoxicillin clavulinate in addition to a macrolide or doxycycline. If you have patients who are allergic to beta-lactams or have other adverse effects and can't take them, you can instead do a respiratory fluoroquinolone. So this will be levofloxacin, 750 milligrams daily, or moxifloxacin at 400 milligrams daily. There are a couple others that have been recently approved as well, so you can choose the one that you think fits best for your patient. When we're moving to the inpatient side of things, so our hospitalized patients, our choice of antibiotics are really going to depend on your patient's risk factors for either MRSA or Pseudomonas, or in some cases, both. If you have a patient who has no risk factors for MRSA or Pseudomonas, you can start with your Unison, Cefotaxime, or my favorite is Ceftriaxone. And you're going to give this in addition to azithromycin or doxycycline. When you have a patient who you are concerned about MRSA for, but not concerned about Pseudomonas, you can give the same regimen, but you're going to add vancomycin or linazolid, so something to cover that MRSA. In your patients where you are concerned about Pseudomonas, but you have no concern for MRSA, you can consider giving either piperacillin tazobactam, cefepime, ceftazidime, imipenem, or meropenem, plus your macrolide like azithromycin or clarithromycin or doxycycline. In addition, you can also, instead of doing your azithromycin, clarithromycin, or doxy, you can do a respiratory fluoroquinolone. For your patients with both pseudomonal and MRSA risk, so those very critically ill patients, you're going to use this regimen, but add vancomycin or linazolid to it. Good. Now, interestingly, in the article, there was some discussion about using steroids in some patients. Can you review for us in which patient steroids or uh, immunosuppressives might be beneficial? Yeah, over the past few years, I think we've seen a lot of stuff out there, especially with COVID, with dexamethasone use and IL-6 and other kinase inhibitors. The article points to a study that was done in ICU patients who were either already receiving mechanical ventilation or were at high risk for respiratory failure. And they gave these patients 200 milligrams daily of hydrocortisone, and then they followed that by a taper, and they saw a benefit of survival among those patients. So this was just in a very subset of critically ill patients with high risk or respiratory failure. All right. Now, how about the duration of treatment? That seems to be completely random. Uh, some people say seven days, 10 days, 14 days, 20 to one days. So what do these authors recommend? Yeah, these authors and most places that I've seen recommend patients having at least a five-day regimen. What I thought was interesting is that they even said maybe in the future we're going to see even shorter regimens in really healthy, you know, otherwise completely stable patients, maybe three days. But for now, it looks like at minimum five days of therapy. You can extend that out a little longer if you do have an immunocompromised patient. Um, in the inpatient side, which is maybe a little less relevant to us in EM, they usually continue antibiotics until patients are afebrile for at least 48 hours and, the, and they are clinically stable. You know, I can't imagine patient being treated for pneumonia with three days of treatment. That's almost like, uh, you know, the classic bronchitis type of treatment where you're just giving an antibiotic to make yourself feel better, but not so much the patient. But uh, I guess as these antibiotics are getting stronger and their half-lives are getting longer and longer, maybe it'll make sense. But anyway, we'll see. So at least five days, there, there is our, our answer. Well, that was a really great review, Bobby. Are, are there any other final points you want to leave the listeners with? So just a couple pearls here. Pneumonia is diagnosed based on your signs and symptoms with radiographic evidence of disease. When you're trying to decide about level of care of a patient, whether outpatient, 
inpatient floors or ICU. Use your clinical judgment. However, you can use some scoring tools in the correct patients. And then finally, at least five days of treatment for your patients with pneumonia. All right. Well, that was a great review again. Thanks for making things so much more clear for us. Dr. Lowy, I look forward to hearing from you again in the near future on EMCast. And until then, please stay in touch. Anytime. I'd love to be back. All right, folks. Well, it is time for our wrap-up session, and we're going to just run through some key pearls that we went through, starting out with the discussion of sodium bicarbonate with Dr. Lloyd Tannenbaum. Lloyd reviewed a really nice article from Journal of Emergency Medicine. And just to skip to the chase, when is sodium bicarb considered safe and potentially useful in the emergency department? Well, it's definitely useful for hyperkalemia. It's not always the first-line therapy if you know that they're hyperkalemic. You're going to go with the calcium and insulin and everything else. But as Lloyd kind of alluded to, if you have doubts about hyperkalemia, for example, you've got a really, really wide, complex tachycardia, the use of sodium bicarb can sometimes narrow that QRS right before your eyes and is a really nice diagnostic challenge. We didn't really get into that because it's a little bit more of a visual topic, but it is a really nice diagnostic test practically uh, to separate ventricular tachycardia, true VTAC, versus one of these mimics from hyperkalemia, for example, or from toxic ingestions of sodium channel blocker drugs. It's also useful for urinary alkalization in those overdoses that require it. And as Lloyd talked about, it's possibly useful in severe acidosis from non-anti-GAP metabolic acidosis. Be careful about overuse, however. Overuse can lead to alkalosis, which can produce hypocalcemia and arrhythmias in and of itself, and also hypotension. It can cause hyperosmolarity, and that can end up leading to pulmonary and cerebral edema. Lactic acidosis, well, it's controversial there, perhaps useful in severe lactic acidosis, but the literature is a little bit divided about that. Some people will use it and some people don't. The evidence really does not show any benefit in cardiac arrest or in diabetic ketoacidosis or in rhabdomyolysis. Those are oftentimes when people reach for the sodium bicarb, but there's no good evidence in any of those conditions. Next, we talked with Dr. David Gatz and Dr. Matt Peremba about migraine headache. This is based on an article that was just published, literally published in print just within the past couple of weeks in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And I think the most interesting things in this discussion, for me at least, uh, were number one, distinguishing migraines from strokes. These This can be pretty tough. Migraines with aura can sometimes really look a lot like a true stroke. You can end up with hemiplegic migraines, migraines with brainstem aura and brainstem symptoms. The distinguishing feature there, though, is that usually if it's a migraine with brainstem aura, you're not going to have motor or retinal symptoms. On the other hand, you can have migraines with specific retinal type of symptoms and visual problems. So it becomes very difficult. One of the other helpful findings is that true migraines versus true strokes can be distinguished based on timing. Migraine auras tend to develop gradually over several minutes, maybe five, 10 minutes or so. And Auras oftentimes are successive, whereas strokes tend to hit you really abruptly. You can be normal, and then within just a, a minute, you've got stroke type of symptoms. So the time of onset can be very useful, and it's always worth asking about how quickly the onset of any symptom is, but especially when trying to distinguish a true migraine versus a stroke. In addition, 
Migraines tend to give you some positive symptoms, for example, paresthesias or visual phenomenon, whereas strokes tend to give you more negative symptoms. So you're not gonna have new paresthesias or new visual symptoms with true strokes. That's more likely to be found with migraines. And one of the really tough things to separate out is posterior strokes versus migraines with brainstem aura, but just keeping in mind statistically that posterior strokes are far more common than migraines with posterior or brainstem aura. I also found interesting the discussion of medication overuse headaches. I really had not heard of that before. This is defined as a headache that lasts for at least 15 days per month, which is caused by overuse of a medication that typically is used for headaches. For example, use of NSAIDs or acetaminophen at least 15 days per month, or use of NSAIDs and acetaminophen, or the use of tryptans for at least 10 days per month. I was never aware that that in and of itself could induce headaches. Another thing I found interesting, of course, was the different choices for management of migraines. For mild to moderate migraines, it's generally recommended to use acetaminophen or NSAIDs. Uh, the authors of this article were really not fans at all of using opiates for migraines. The typical first-line type of medications that tend to be used and recommended are prochlorperazine or metoclopramide. Uh, other things that are often used are sumatriptan, ketorolac, or dihydroergotamines. You know, we usually just use a prochlorperazine or metoclopramide. They really should be given parenterally, by the way. I oftentimes have... Um, people asking about giving them orally if there is difficult IV access, but you know, IV really works a whole lot better than oral. Second line agents that I really hadn't heard of before were valproic acid. I've never used that before, but that's something that has some literature base not to be used in pregnancy or patients with liver function problems. And then magnesium I've heard of before for this particular purpose. And also dexamethasone is something that I personally oftentimes use. And there's some literature suggesting that it decreases bounce back rates or recurrent headaches the next day. So it's not really something that's gonna make them better right away, but in a small percentage of patients, I think the article they said about 10% of people, it can decrease the likelihood of coming back. Just one time dose, that's fairly harmless if the patient doesn't have diabetes or, or glucose problems. Again, drugs that the authors were really not fans of at all were the use of opioids or barbiturates in the acute setting. And then when you discharge these patients, you wanna counsel them about some simple things that might help prevent recurrence, things like staying away from alcohol, trying to maintain good hydration, increasing physical activity and improving sleep hygiene. And with that, limiting caffeine, especially later in the day, can be very helpful also. A lot of these headaches are indeed caused by poor sleep. And the final topic was community-acquired pneumonia. This was a discussion with Dr. Bobby Lowy based on a New England Journal article. And not a whole lot of groundbreaking things here, but there were some important uh, things that I hadn't known of before. First of all, the primary method of inoculation of these pneumonias is uh, apparently microaspiration of organisms in the oropharynx. That's not something that I had really thought of before, except maybe in alcoholics or people with decreased mental status. From a diagnostic standpoint, remember that the diagnosis of pneumonia is largely clinical. It's not purely a radiologic diagnosis. So yeah, the, the radiologic studies are important, but it should really be correlated with their clinical presentation as well. So it's a combination of history, physical, and also radiology. 
Uh, in terms of lab studies, there's really nothing that's been shown to be diagnostic. The labs might be useful for risk stratification, but there's no single lab, unfortunately, that nails the diagnosis of pneumonia. There are a couple of scoring decision instruments that are out there that I'm sure the majority of you know about. There is the pneumonia severity index, uh, which is a little bit more longstanding, uh, but it is complicated. There's a lot of different things that you need to assess in order to come up with that score. What's a lot more simple and has become very, very popular over at least the past 10 years or so is the CURB 65 score. And you can look both of those up online. But remember that clinical gestalt always takes precedence. And for me, the most important thing to use in deciding whether somebody is okay to go home or not is the walking test. Get the patient up out of the stretcher, have them walk a lap or two around the emergency department. Sometimes people will hook them up to the pulse ox at the same time to see if they desaturate. But what I'm really looking for, not it's not just the pulse ox, but what I'm really, really focused on is when they're walking around the emergency department, are they looking real tachypnic? Are they looking like they're having a tough time subjectively? How are they feeling? If they can do a couple laps and they look good and they say, doc, I feel pretty good, then that patient can probably go but if they're looking really tachyptic, like they really need to sit down or on that walking pulse ox, they're dropping to the low 90s or upper 80s or so, and they started out in the upper 90s, then that's a real concern. And I'm just thinking about a case that we had maybe about a week or two ago where we had a patient who was in her 50s or so, and she came in with a signs and symptoms classic for pneumonia. She had a small infiltrate and she looked pretty good. She did not meet any of the CURB 65 criteria, but when we got her up and started walking her around the emergency department, she desaturated to the upper 80s on her pulse ox and she also got really tachyptic and looked like she was having a tough time. So even though she didn't meet any of those CURB 65 scores, she's a slam dunk admission. She's definitely not ready to go home. So the walking test to me is the most important test you can do. So before you send any pulmonary type of patient, and this applies not just to pneumonia, but asthma and COPD, and also the PEs that you send home, get them up, walk them around, make sure they feel comfortable when they're walking around and they're not desaturating. In terms of antibiotics, you know, this changes often enough that it's worth just quickly reviewing. For outpatient healthy patients, amoxicillin one gram three times a day or doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day would be a reasonable first-line choice. If they've recently been on antibiotics for some reason or they have comorbidities, then you might switch over to Augmentin, which is amoxicillin plus, plus clavulanate, and add to that a macrolide or doxycycline to pick up your atypicals. And if they are penicillin or allergic, you might instead go with a fluoroquinolone. And then for inpatient management, I, I'm just going to refer you back to the podcast. There's a lot of different choices here, and it'll depend on how sick they are. It'll depend on recent antibiotics and whether MRSA is a concern. And also you want to look at your local resistance patterns and your antibiograms. And then another bit of a surprise was the use of steroids. Maybe not so relevant to us in the emergency department, but if somebody is sick enough to be admitted to the ICU, there's some clinical benefit that's been found to adding steroids. But you know what? I'm going to leave that up to the ICU folks. There is no rush to get the steroids on board as quickly as possible, uh, at least um, based on what we've read so far. But discuss that with your intensive care physicians if the patient is going to the ICU. 
All right, folks. Well, that does it for our summary of the December issue of EMCast. My best wishes to all of you for safe and happy and warm holidays. And I look forward to talking to all of you next year. Bye for now. Hey, thanks for listening to EMCast. And for listening to the end, here's a discount code for you. Use discount code PODCAST for 10% off each year of an annual subscription to emedhome.com.